Well, we're going to be in uh, Luke chapter 8, starting at verse 43, and we'll be going through verse 48. So if you don't mind standing for the reading of the word. Hey, by show of hands, how many college students we got in the house today? Wow. 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 Oh, we're going to have some problems. <laughs> it's getting packed in here. Um, bless you guys. Excited for y'all to be back. Um, let's go ahead and jump in, uh, starting at verse 43, as is our custom. I will begin reading, and then you guys continue. So real loud. One, two, three. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. Keep reading. Praise God. Praise God. Excited to jump in this passage. I just want to tag it. Desperate for him. Desperate for him. Let's go before the Father. Thank you so much, God, for the opportunity to preach your living and active word. I mean, all the words we can use to describe you, omniscient, omnipotent, they just don't do you justice. God, you are beyond our imagination, and then even then, you're greater than that. Lord God, you are infinitely great in all of your love and your wisdom and your justice, and yet you came down as a man, packed all of who you are into a person, Jesus Christ, and you, by your own worth, said that I'm going to love on some folks that don't deserve it. Like, we will be bugged out for that for eternity. So as we look at this text, Lord God, knowing all that you've done for us, would you make us a desperate people? Would you make us a desperate people needy for you? Would you make us a people that are longing for you? And Lord God, would you not allow us to walk away from this place as though we can take for granted the grace that has been given to us? Lord God, would you save somebody in this place? Would you be magnified and celebrated by all, and would you sanctify many? And it's in the matchless name of the great Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. It's in, in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. You can take your seats. You can take your seats. So as you guys pro probably know, in our society, this word desperation isn't normally a good thing. Like in our society that esteems people who are self-made those who have just worked hard, pulled themselves up by their own bootstraps, this idea of need and desperation is ugly. But in reality, somebody who is on life support doesn't mind that word at all. 
And what we have to come to realize and recognize is that we are all desperate for God because it's by Him that we even have life itself. And so for all of our desires to have ego and to think that we've made something out of ourselves, let's not forget our desperation. And what I've come to find out is that even though we hate this word desperation, all of our lives reflect desperation or longing for something or someone. We could try to get away from it, but it is clear that our lives reflect this longing and this need and this desperation for something or someone. I was looking or listening to an NPR program by Dr. Dan Gottlieb, and he was going around to different high schools, and he was kind of taken back by the fact that these students were putting so much work into a class that meant so little, SAT prep class. And so as he go, went around and he was going to these classes, he started asking some questions. So the first question he asked is, why do you put so much effort into SAT prep? To which the students responded, so we can get good scores on the SAT. Well, that made sense, but he wanted to dig a little deeper. He said, why do you want good scores on the SAT? And they responded, so we can get to a good college. So he asked, why do you want to get into a good college? And they said, so we can get a good job. Okay, and I'm like, when is this going to end? So he asked again, why do you want to get a good job? And they said, so we can make a lot of money. And the last time he asked a question to dig deeper, he asked him, why are you longing? Why are you so desperate to make a lot of money? And they were kind of stunned and taken back by this question. They paused for a bit. And then one young man stood up and said, so that we can be happy. That at the end of the day, all of their pursuit in life, the reason why they're putting so much effort into something like an SAT prep course is because they see that their happiness is tied directly to the amount of wealth that they can accumulate. Now, they're desperate for wealth and their pursuit is going to show this. But once they get their hands and their fingertips on all the wealth that they can possibly imagine, what they're going to realize is that their pursuit was futile. Billionaires have committed suicide. Money is not at all the pursuit of our lives. And so we have to ask ourselves two questions of this text. This is a familiar text about a young woman who's been going through a deep sickness for 12 years. And we're always asking ourselves, are you desperate as a Christian? Are you desperate? But a better question is not just are you desperate, but who or what are you desperate for? Who or what are you desperate for? One of the ways in which we can answer that question is by filling in this blank. If you say, if I had blank, my life would be better. Or if I had more of blank, more of X, my life would be better. Some of us would fill this in with if I had more children. Some of us have been struggling with fertility if I had a child. Some of us are looking for a job if I just had a job. Some of us money if I just had more money. Some of us a, a, a spouse, a wife. Some of us a husband. Some of us a better husband. Don't amen that. But we're all longing for something. And here we find a woman who's been longing for healing, but what she encounters is the healer. And so go, let's go ahead and check this girl out. 40, 
3, verse 43 says this, And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years, and though she had spent all of her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. Twelve years that she's been going through this. One month, she's been having a normal menstrual cycle. This one month comes and the bleeding never stops. And let's talk about how drained she is. I want you to really, like, like strap on her Tim, strap on her high heels, whatever you want to call it, maybe flip-flops for some of the college students. But I want you to really dig into her shoes. I want you to empathize with this woman because this is a woman that has been drained. She's drained physically. As she literally sees blood pouring from her body. And as a woman in a culture that's Jewish, she would know that the scripture actually says that the life of men is found in the blood. And so she sees blood day by day pouring from her. She sees that her life is literally leaving her. She's drained. She's exhausted. She's tired. But not only that, she's drained financially. I mean, she's lost all of her money. The Talmud, the the commentary for Jews on the law, built over a, a series of years and by different, many different rabbis. Here's what's crazy about it. For just this disease, they prescribe 11 different methods for a cure. She's been through all of that. All types of stuff from incantations to different potions. She's been to St. Jude. She's been to Temple Hospital. She's been to Jefferson. She's been to UPenn. Nothing seems to work. And all that comes from this is more pain, more frustration, and more debt collectors. She's bankrupt. And the blood doesn't stop. But not only that. She's drained physically, yes. She's drained financially, yes. But here's where it gets even harder. She's drained emotionally. She's ostracized from all society. The scripture says that when you're unclean, you can literally contaminate everybody else that you come in contact with. So nobody can come near her. I think about this as a kid, like a child. I remember when I was growing up a little bit. And we used to play like some cool games like Duck, Duck, Goose. That's all right. Um, musical chairs. But we had some like weird stuff and kind of dark stuff that we said as kids. Like, have you ever thought about cross my heart, hope to die, stick a needle in my eye? <laughs> like what a kid. This is a second grader saying this. Or ring around the rosy, pockets full of posy, ashes, ashes, we all fall down. I was literally watching a documentary and found out that's about the black lung disease. What is going on? And the worst of all is cooties. Because cooties gives third graders a chance to treat one kid as though they shouldn't have been born that day. Whoever has the cooties, you're not getting picked up on anybody's basketball team. No one wants to play tag with you. And if they do, you're always it. Lunchtime is the worst. Nobody eats with you. And worse than that, all trades are off limits at lunchtime for the guy with cooties. I remember going to school, and I don't know about y'all, but my mom would go to the grocery store and buy the 24 packs of, of, of Frito-Lay chips. 
And so, you know, in every box of those Frito-Lay chips, they'd have like a whole bunch of the cheesy Doritos. Then if you were lucky, they'd have the Cool Ranch, a few of those. They, they always pack only a few of those in the box. Always used to, used to upset me. They put some Cheetos in the box. Maybe you get a few original Lay's potato chips. But then at the end of the box, when no person, no kid wants to eat, there's like eight Fritos. Just nobody likes those chips. And so normally when you get to the Frito days, you have that one really weird kid in class who actually likes Fritos. And so you would want to be the first person to that kid in class so you could trade your Fritos for his duck and Dunkaroos or some of his Lunchables, maybe Moss applesauce or Gogurt. But on the day when you have cooties, all trades off limits. Even the weirdest guy in class won't trade with you. And we look at this, and this is hilarious as a kid, but as a grown woman, her family members deserted her. Her parents abandoned her. If she had a husband, divorced. If she had children, they're gone with other family members. She is completely secluded from all of society. I mean, we think Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer had it bad. Nobody would let him play in the reindeer games. This is legit being ostracized. And what makes all of this worse is that if she was just drained physically, just drained financially, just drained emotionally, she would be able to handle it because there would be a temple that she can go to where there's a God who's a father to the fatherless, one who loves the sojourner in exile. But even the scripture says because of her disease, the temple is too pure because it, it contains the very presence of God. She can't even go into the temple to worship. Where can she find comfort? Where can she find any sense of joy? Completely stripped from her. She's drained spiritually. Now before we say just woe is her, this is terrible in her, all she is is a visual of what is true for each and every person in the world. You look back at Genesis 3, Adam and Eve, the first man, the first woman created. They fall into sin after they're living in paradise. They disobey God, and three things happen. He says, dying you shall die. There's brokenness between their relationship, and they're separated from the very presence of God. You look at this woman. That's all she's going through. She sees dying you shall die. Literally, lifeblood is draining from her. She sees it. It's a visual. She's broken from all society, all people, all humanity. And she's separated from the very presence of God. This is just but a visual of what is true from each and every person when we come into this world. And so the question is no longer, are you desperate? The question is, are you humble enough to admit how desperate you are? She was. And it's in this moment, in this space, where she has absolutely nothing left, that she begins to hear commercials about Jesus. People coming back in the neighborhood, wilding out, bugging out, yo, this dude, Jesus just healed folks. 
And she can't come in contact with them, so she just peeps from the window. She's listening. Listen closely. Seeing that they keep talking about the same prophet, Jesus, 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 Jesus. He's been to Galilee before. She missed him the first time. She said, there is no way when he comes back into town that I'm going to miss him this time. And so she begins her diligent pursuit of him. Scripture says next, it says that she came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, verse 44, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. So this was not a woman who was like arrogant in healing, in needing healing. She didn't come up to Jesus, call out to him in the crowd like, yo, Jay, I need some of that healing juice. You got something for me. She tried to go ninja style through a crowd that's ridiculously packed. I mean, you can just see her doing like cartwheels around Peter, doing a little spin move around John just to get to the tip of Jesus's garment. And immediately when she touches it, this problem that has been plaguing her for 12 years, gone. That's the power of our God. Gone. And this was crazy. It took Jesus less than 12 seconds to do what it had taken physician after physician after physician to do in 12 years, and they still couldn't get it right. And so, happens next. She's in this moment. She's desperate. She comes behind him, and she's immediately healed. And we're all asking ourselves, how amazing, how does she get this diligence to pursue him through all of this? And what we always miss when we look at this text, we always are looking at how diligent she was in her pursuit of Jesus. But what we miss is that we will never reflect her diligence without first embracing her desperation. Are we desperate today? Like there, there's so much in our lives that we have, so much at our fingertips that we can kind of plug into that desperation has kind of lost us. If I tap into Jesus, cool. If not, cool. So we go along our day. We, we, we say, well, I got to do this before I get to it. I got to do this before I get to Jesus. We put him off to the end of the day and then we're yawning. And we call ourselves desperate because we've tried to fight through our sleepiness. Are we like desperate for Jesus? Because here's what amazes me about this. Is that she was but scratching the surface of who he was. She didn't know that he was the prophet that Moses was speaking about. She had no clue that this was the son of God that has come down to earth. All she knew was that he was a healer, and she was just scratching the surface of who, she, who he was, and that was enough to make her perfectly clean. So don't make excuses. I don't have enough time. Scratch the surface. Just scratch the surface. You'll see how much it can literally turn your life upside down. What amazes me about this is that she goes 
through the possibility of embarrassment, hostility, all types of distractions, doubt. Could you imagine what's going through her head and her heart as she's working her way through a crowd that if anybody detected that this was a woman with an issue of blood would have to have cried, unclean, unclean, and everybody else would have had to move away from her. And she went through all of that. Listen. Because of a word that somebody told her about Jesus. Had never experienced deliverance herself before. Had never experienced the hand of God in this way before. She hears about Jesus and she pursues him in this way. And yet many of us in here, myself included, have been freed and delivered from all types of stuff. That if we were to tell it in this church, people would run away from us. Jesus has come into our dark world, given us brand new breath, brand new life, and yet all of that we experience is our pursuit like hers? Like, does it look like hers? The question is, not just are you desperate, but who or what are you really desperate for? She's a desperate woman. But next we see Jesus' discernment. Look at Jesus' discernment. Look, look at this. It says next, it says, And Jesus said, Who was it that touched me? And when all denied, now that's hilarious to me because it already said that the crowd is pressing him in from every angle. So everybody denies that they are touching him. I don't know what that's about, but I guess we're just a whole bunch of little liars, so let's just keep it going. Peter said, Master, the crowd surround you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, "Mm -mm, I know that. I get that, Peter. I'm not dumb. Somebody's touched me in a different way. Somebody's touched me in a desperate way. Somebody has touched me who has a heart that has been crying out, begging the God of the universe to meet me. And yet, you're asking me about a crowd pressing me? Peter, I know that. I want you to see something that's going on here because you have something to learn, Peter. So we see Jesus' discernment. Now, I want you guys to really see this scene, okay? Now, imagine Temple University in March Madness, right? Now, we just made it to the final four. Uh, this is the type of stuff you only hear in sermons and in prayer. <laughs> but we just made it to the final four, and it's in Philly at the Wells Fargo Center. All of Philly's going crazy. Game tied, and the shooting guard takes a shot from half court, banks it in. Game over. Now, in that moment, Everybody in the stands is bomb rushing the court to get their hands on one person, the guy who just made the shot. Have you, I mean, it's a scary scene. I, I know that, like, it's fun, you're excited, but everybody's literally trying to tackle the same guy. And in that moment, that guy says, Who touched me? Who touched me? See, and we got to even go a little bit deeper into this text because it wasn't just that there was a crowd for crowd's sake. 
Jesus just got a 911 call from Jairus, the ruler of the synagogue, that his daughter was about to die. Jesus hops into the ambulance and he's in the midst of rush hour traffic on Broad Street, has a green light, and he stops for a woman on the side of the road. Can you imagine if your Jairus and your daughter is dying? We complain all the time about how late the cops and the ambulances come to our house now. Could you imagine your daughter's dying? The one guy who can heal her is taking his sweet time because he notices one woman. Why, Jesus? Jesus does all of that to say to her and to say to the crowd and to say to us that desperate faith never goes unnoticed by our God. Desperate faith never goes unnoticed by our God. It makes me think of Hannah in the Old Testament, begged God for years for a child, cried out over and over and over and over again, felt like she was never heard. And then one day, God answers her prayer and gives her a child. She had given up? What are we talking about? But she was desperate and desperate and desperate and never could stop going back to her God because she knew that he was the only one who could answer and he was the only one who would. Desperate faith never goes unnoticed. I got to preach this to myself. I have family members. I've been praying on my knees, Jesus, over and over and over again. Save them, please. I felt like God hasn't answered. This passage tells me that desperate faith never goes unnoticed. Get on your knees tonight. Continue praying for that daughter, that son, that brother, that sister, that pops, that grandparent. Get on your knees tonight again, tomorrow morning. Find a partner who's just as desperate as you to bombard the kingdom of heaven with your pleas. Somebody's sick. And we hear so much about God is sovereign and he's just going to do what he will, so don't pray for the sick. That's not in my text. You pray for the sick. You, you bombard the kingdom of heaven with your prayers because desperate faith does not go unnoticed. It was her desperate faith along with his power that provided deliverance in this situation. Are you desperate? Because if you're desperate for, before Jesus, he notices you. The psalmist says it this way, a broken and contrite heart, he will not turn away. Are you broken? Are you weak? Are you in need? God hears you and notices you. Don't stop bombarding him. Next, we see her declaration. We see her declaration. Now peep this. Listen to what the scripture says. It says, but Jesus has said, someone has touched me, for I perceive that power has gone from, out from me. 
And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him. Now, just remember for a second, this is a recluse, somebody who's always on an island, somebody who's always in the backdrops of society, somebody that people can't talk to, people can't get near to. This is her. And yet in this moment, she has to go in the midst of a crowd of thousands of people to declare her testimony. And so she declares Jesus' power in two ways. First by her posture and then by her proclamation. Let's look at her posture. She comes with fear and trembling before the Lord. Like she's not arrogant in this situation. How often do we approach God like, yeah, it's cool if you're, if you're there, cool if you're not. There's a deep need here. She comes with fear and trembling. I always ask people who have been hurt by people in the church who say that after they came out of their prayer closet, they are more of a jerk than before. I always ask them to read Isaiah 6 to see if that person was actually genuinely meeting with Jesus in that prayer closet. Because in the presence of God, yeah. <laughs> he lays you low. <laughs> he lays you low. Look at Isaiah 6, one of the greatest prophets in the Old Testament, gets a chance to go into the heavenly realm. He's standing before the, all the creatures in heaven, and they're singing the greatest hook you will ever hear. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. The whole earth is full of his glory. Singing this over and over again, and Isaiah's starting to get bugged out. You read a few verses down, and Isaiah says these words, Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips. Did you catch what I said? This is a prophet, what they will call the mouthpiece of God. And yet before the presence of this holy and perfect God, even a prophet thinks he has a potty mouth. She comes before him with fear and trembling. But the next thing she does is she proclaims before the audience all that has happened to her. Now, we normally see this text and we think that she has been the one who's pursuing Jesus. And yes, that's true to an extent. But you got to realize and recognize that this is Jesus pursuing her. I mean, think about this. The eternal God who has already predestined her to be saved. The eternal God who knows that he's going to meet with her in this way. The eternal God who has already crafted a scheme to be, bring restoration and redemption to a broken world, to literally send all the fullness of deity, namely the second person of the Trinity, into the fetus of a small womb of a 12-year-old girl named Mary, that he's going to preach and teach and heal people. And knowing all the time that this girl has been crying out for healing for 12 years, do you think he actually flew from light years, an infinite amount of light years away to his destination on earth just to stop short a few miles from her house on accident? 
Nah. Now he purposed that he would come not to her doorstep, but to her driveway. See, he wanted to draw just close enough to her to draw her out of her house, but not so close that she could remain in. Jesus is on his greatest hits tour. He's about to do his fan favorite by raising Jairus' daughter from the dead. And at the moment where the crowd is chanting encore, 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 Jesus literally says, yo, 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 stop the music. I want to bring to the stage a very special fan. And this woman who thought she was going to come in and come out unnoticed, Jesus doesn't just let her get recognized. He literally places the spotlight on her and fades everything else to black. Jesus shares his greatest stage with this woman who no one in society wanted to listen to. All of society looks at her as a woman as less than. Looks at her as a person with this issue of blood as unclean. Looks at her as poor, as one who is useless. And yet this less than, unclean, useless woman, Jesus says, I believe that you have something valuable that this entire audience needs to hear. He doesn't even hand the mic to his man Peter. He hands the mic to her. So the reality is, is that if Jesus is saying to her that even she has something valuable to say, he's saying the very same thing to us. By way of our deliverance, you have something valuable to say. God has shared his audience with you. It's not by any chance that you have the co-workers that you have. It's not by chance that you live across the street from the neighbors that you live across. It's not by, by chance that there's an annoying co-worker who's always bothering you. God has uniquely shared his stage with you to say to you and the world that you have something valuable to say. Here's the question. What are you saying, Christian? See, the reason why most of us don't testify of the goodness of God is because we've forgotten how good he is. But when you remember that you were desperate, that you were dark, that, that you had no hope outside of the Lord Jesus Christ, and that in that moment, he said, yo, I pick you. I pick you. How dare we not share that with the rest of the world? Jesus has shared his stage with you. What are you saying? But beyond her declaration, you see Jesus' endearment. One of the sweetest words in all of Scripture, phrases in all of Scripture. He says, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Your faith has made you well. In other translations, it might translate it, your faith has saved you because I actually believe that in this passage, this is a salvation moment for her. The reason why I think that is because if you look just a chapter before, Jesus says the same exact thing to a prostitute. 
She's not sick. She's not hurt. And yet he says your faith has made you well. What has it made her well from? From sin, from pain, from the wrath of God. And he says your faith has saved you. He declares to this audience that she wasn't saved because she touched the hem of his garment, but she was saved because she had faith in him who was in the garment. But next he says, go in peace. Could you imagine hearing those words after all she's been through? Lift your head up, sister. I know they've called you overweight, ugly. I know they've called you promiscuous, too, too, too ugly to be able to do anything for God. I, I know that they've said some very hurtful things. I know that they've done some very hurtful things. He says, but their word doesn't matter as much as mine. <laughs> My word is the only one that matters. And what I say to you is go in peace. Go in peace. But steeped in all of this is this one word. And you got to hear me. Jesus doesn't say this to any other woman in the Gospels. He says, daughter. And you can imagine why. Because after being abandoned by all her friends, all her family members, and worst of all, by even her parents, she has probably not heard anybody call her daughter for years. Jesus says to her, daughter, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. As I was thinking about this, I was looking at uh, The Pursuit of Happiness, movie played by... Uh, Fresh Prince, Will Smith. I think it's probably his greatest performance. And in the movie, you see a very similar situation going on. He's pursuing what he thinks is happiness, but on the way, there's difficulty after difficulty after difficulty. And just like this woman, it seems like it doesn't stop. But after all of that heartache, gets to the end of the movie, and he captures the moment well. Because he doesn't just shout, hooray, I got the job. That's what you say like if you're like about to get a job at McDonald's or something. Or she doesn't say anything like, well, yes, I did it. That's what a kid says when they blow out a candle at their birthday party. There's no words that can capture that moment. All he does is. And as I look at him clapping his hands, what struck me is that the reason he had to clap his own hands is because he had no one to high five. Everybody had deserted him. So the real person who that movie is based on, Chris Gardner, had a really rough life. Difficult life. His mom was put in prison for trying to burn the house down with his stepdad inside. And Chris Gardner, up until this point, even now, says that I wish she had have succeeded in killing that man. A guy who had multiple times uh, pulled out shotguns on them, very abusive. He says, I remember the last Christmas I was at home, I was put out butt naked at gunpoint by this stepdad. 
This subsequently led to him being on the streets and being raped by a man on the street. And so as he gets his breakthrough for him and his son, that is not the most emotional point in his story. The most emotional point in his story is when he's in South Africa and Nelson Mandela invites him in. And once he walks through the, the door, the first words that Nelson Mandela says to him is, welcome home, son. He said, at that moment, tears begin to rush into my heart and my soul because it took me 46 years to hear those words, welcome home, son. Well, don't you know that this Jesus that just healed this woman by the hem of her garment is about to have a brand new story just a few months later? That all of it's leading to this point where a crowd will again be pressing Jesus, but this time they won't be pressing him to find healing or any teaching from him. They'll be pressing him to call out for his death. The same crowd, many of the same faces who are calling out for him to heal them are going to call out for them to crucify him. Do you see this, Jesus? And the problem in this story with the young lady is this issue, this discharge, this unstoppable flow of blood. But that becomes the solution in this next story. That the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, as it flows from his nail-pierced hands and his nail-pierced feet and the, the crown of thorns on his head, this is the very blood that brings us deliverance and rescue just like this woman. It's here that Jesus is able to say to her, Go in peace. But the story doesn't end on that cross. Because three days after he died, he's raised from the dead with all power in his hands. And he's, he's seated at the right hand of God. And here's the beautiful thing. He tells his disciples before he leaves that I'm going to prepare a place for you. So that one day, each and every person who places their trust and confidence in the Lord Jesus Christ and him alone with desperation, crying out to him for mercy, to him for grace, we get to hear the same words that Chris Gardner heard from Nelson Mandela. Welcome home, son. Welcome home, daughter. That's the good news. And so here, Christians, I just want to say this real quick. I want to leave you all with homework. First off. I want you to look introspectively and ask yourself, who or what are you desperate for today? Who or what are you truly desperate for, longing for today? I don't want the right answer. As I said the first service, I can go up to Epiphany Kids to get the right answer. They always know the right answer is Jesus. So I don't want the right answer, but what's the real answer? I want you to begin praying for God to change your heart there. And then next, as I close, I want you to look at your life and see what people in your life are going unnoticed. Because if we are supposed to be a very extension of Christ himself, God is gonna send particular people to our sphere who see the hope that's in us. And they're gonna be asking some questions. And here's my question to you. They don't know what they're looking for. Have you noticed them? Make a list of those you have been unwilling to share the gospel with in your life. I want you to pray to the Lord 
to ask for opportunities and for their hearts to be changed so that we can see more and more people delivered just like this young woman and just like each and every one of you. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your love and your grace to us. Your goodness is beyond us. God, you have delivered us from much more than an issue of blood. You've delivered us from the very wrath of God himself that we deserved. Lord God, if we have been delivered from that much, how dare we not share that truth with a dying world? And how dare we not pursue you for the rest of our lives with utter desperation. We love you, Lord God, and we're praying for your help in this way. And every time we fail, we thank you, Lord God, that it's you that says, even when you fail, I am still your comforter, your grace, your love. We thank you, Lord God. We praise you. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Amen.